Hello and welcome to Digital Masters, transforming UK business. I'm Robert Miller from the Times Business Desk. We've teamed up with the experts at KPMG to bring you this series on how some of Britain's most established businesses are embracing digital transformation. This is the last in our three-part series, and this time we're taking the opportunity to look ahead. We'll be finding out how UK companies are behaving at this time of uncertainty and how different sectors are embracing digital innovation to remain agile and indeed stable in the face of Brexit and beyond. We'll also be donning our wellies to meet some clever robots in a field in Hampshire. Tackling today's topics, I'm joined by Tim Sarson, who's KPMG's tax expert, and he's been leading the firm's Brexit response in tax and location strategy right across the industry. Also with us is Chris Meadows. He's the head of marketing and communications at IQE, a company that he's seen expand into a high-tech manufacturing operation right the way across Europe, Asia, and the United States. Thank you both for joining me. Chris, Companies go through on times of uncertainty, whether it's economic or sectoral problems. How do businesses see through the immediate obstacles and plan for the longer term, in your experience? I, I, I think uh, with hindsight, I, I could almost say we, we take it in our stride. But of course, at the time, uh, it's like the proverbial duck um, that looks calm on top, but a lot of activity underneath. Um, we were founded uh, 30 years ago, and so we've been through quite a few uh, pretty substantial changes and transitions. Uh, first of all, there was the dot-com boom and bust, and then we've had the uh, financial crisis. Um, and each time, obviously, we need to uh, restock on where we are because it affects the the export of our products. But actually, in terms of technology, it allows uh, us to take stock of what we need to produce and where we need to innovate uh, to be able to come up with new disruptive technologies. Uh, and actually, some, sometimes this, um, this vacuum that's created by these transition periods provides that opportunity. Do you find, in, in both your experiences, you first, that some companies that they're small and nimble they are the disruptors they don't care about the established disruptors to me i mean is is that what businesses should be doing today uh, everyone talks about disruption disruptors disrupting themselves they talk a good game i think the fact is there are certain industries and certain types of business that are just factually more nimble because of the nature of what they make or what they do th than others and and with the best will in the world, if you're a company that specialises in uh, pumping oil out of the ground, even in uh, discovering cures to, a, to, to diseases, you're operating in a very different world from those that um, actually set out as being disruptors in the first place. Um, there, are, there are industries that are heavily regulated where actually government decisions are the crucial driver of their, their business and there are other businesses that can can operate wherever they want to in, in a much more nimble way that's just the, the fact is there sometimes a default position you find companies falling into and you almost tearing your hair out going oh my goodness me not again uh Absolutely. Um, throughout the supply chain, um, you see different attitudes taken uh, to how to deal with um, uh, lots of different types of uncertainties. Um, I, I think we're probably quite fortunate um, that the tech sector tends to be pretty agile and, and used to dealing with changes. But I, I think um, uh, looking at it across the broader economy, um, I certainly have conversations um, with, with business people that really are just waiting to kind of suck it and see. IQE has always been a disruptor. 
uh, and um, the agility that we have by both working in a field that's uh, technology-based but also um, with various uh, geographical uh, locations based in the US, based in uh, Asia, as well as our headquarters here in the UK, um, means that we can also move production around. Um, and, and we need to do that anyway um, to make sure that we can meet our customers' requirements um, to produce from multiple facilities across the world. Yeah, you, you were talking to me before uh, th- this podcast, actually, about the, the reason why you're based in a number of different places around the world. And you have the sort of supply chain and the sort of business that means that 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 can work okay well let's leave it there just for the moment sit tight please and before we delve more deeply into some of that discussion let's hear an example from the other side of the coin the small robot company is an agritech startup that's leading a charge towards innovation and efficiency in agriculture we met up with its founders sam watson jones and ben scott robinson to find out more i'm sam watson jones i'm co-founder at small robot company i've been running our family farm for the last seven years I'm Ben Scott Robinson. I'm co-founder of the Small Robot Company. We're here today at the Leckford Estate, which is the Waitrose Farm in Hampshire, and they are one of our 20 trials farms. We both thought that farming needed to be better in terms of how it used technology to produce food. And, and we thought there was a big opportunity in changing the way we did it and changing the way we, we, we thought about it as well. I was actually uh, introduced to the idea of small robots while driving to work one day uh, and I was listening to a thing called the Oxford Farming Conference, which is like the big farming shindig. Uh, and then this chap came on who started talking about how everything that was going on in farming at the moment from a technology perspective uh, was broken. And it was causing huge amounts of damage. It wasn't uh, increasing uh, profits and yields for farmers. uh, And ultimately, the whole system had to be rethought. And he had spent the last 15 years at looking at how to implement small autonomous vehicles on farms and do a lot of the jobs uh, that were done by big machines now, uh, but in a more effective and efficient way. And I nearly crashed the car. Uh, I thought it was amazing. Uh, Just the most amazing thing I'd ever heard. How often do you get a chance to, to see a revolution before it happens? So we've got a great group of of 20 farmers, really forward-thinking, engaged farmers who are, um, we call them our farmer advisory group. Um, They are our test bed for for what we're doing. But they they do also operate as an advisory group. So we have Tom Allen Stevens, who is chairman of the Oxford Farming Conference. We are today on one of our partner farms, which is the Waitrose Farm. Uh, we uh, also have the National Trust, and, and in total, it's about uh, it's about about 8,000 hectares of British farmland. It's about 4,000 hectares of of wheat, which is the first crop that we're that we're going at. So it's a really good test bed. In the process of creating the service we realized that we required three different types of robots Um, we very quickly picked up on the idea of calling them tom dick and harry the other thing was around um, the operating system that bound all these robots together that we call wilma who's the brains of the outfit and sort of make sure tom dick and harry do what they need to do so tom is a monitoring robot um his job is to ultimately is to live on a farm is to drive up and down the rows of wheat all day every day uh, collecting data uh, and then return to his kennel to be able to change batteries and recharge uh, but also to be able to upload that data to Wilma 
Um, because farms are not blessed with the world's greatest internet connection, um, we can't um, upload that stuff to a cloud. We have to do edge, use what they call edge computing and do a lot of the processing on um, AI algorithms which are actually in the kennel, which allows us to introduce a level of precision and accuracy to what we're doing, which has just been unheard of before. In fact, when we started talking about this, uh, we heard the words, that is impossible, a lot, number of times, and it's been, it's been very exciting to be able to sort of move that forward. So the purpose of us being here today on the Lakeford Estate, one of our one of our twenty partner farms, has been to start kick off this spring's um, data collection to train our AIs to be able to understand the state of the wheat as it sort of grows from coming out of the soil all the way up to fully grown. So we have to go out into the fields and collect uh, images of these plants as they grow. We have to be able to collect images of weeds as they grow amongst them. We need to collect information about how healthy the plants are, etc. And we need to feed that through Wilma and teach Wilma exactly what she's looking for in a healthy plant over the course of the growing cycle. With us today uh, is our robotic engineer, Robin whose responsibility at the moment is taking our first Tom robot out into the fields to collect the data. Uh, Robin has spent an awful long time on the road, uh, going all around the country to all our different farms, uh, and uh, he has been, it has been Robin and Tom as a two-man band for the last few months in field. We're, we're very close. <laughs> so yeah, I'm just taking Tom out, and what I will do at any given farm is I will plot out a small sample area and drive Tom over those particular sections. What I'm trying to do is capture the same plants every two weeks to see their individual growth and progress. And um, I'll do that with Tom, who is not quite knee height, has a bit of a gormless face on the front, make it um, friendly for farmers and the general public. What Tom will do is he'll take two or three pictures a second of the wheat, just top-down view. With those pictures, he will tag them with their exact location using the same kind of GPS you get in your phone, but far more accurate, down to two centimetres or so. As we go along, taking those pictures, geotagging them, and once we've got all that data, we will upload it to um, our AI, which will start learning, as Ben said, what wheat looks like, frankly. That's the first challenge we need to deal with. What is wheat to a computer, really? Across the industry, um, there was some research by Andersons, the farm consultancy, that said that 85% of UK arable farms are not profitable without, without a subsidy. We don't know how much of that subsidy check is going to disappear after Brexit, but, but it's likely to be most of it. And so what that's going to mean is that farms are, for the first time in a long time, going to have to be much more market-focused. And this is another way that we think robotics and artificial intelligence will will assist the farmer because what it'll do is it'll create a great freedom of time to enable the farmer to get really clear on what they are individually good at and so we think that that the trend will be that farms will will become much more market focused and will probably become much more diverse businesses and actually there's a huge opportunity for for rural growth um, uh, i think off the off the back of these changes to to subsidy Actually, this is a great time to be starting a robotics and, and AI business for, for farming. I think another really interesting thing is that, the, the, and although none of it is tied down, the, the, what we're hearing um, for replacements to the, to the subsidy as it stands at the moment is a lot more environmentally focused. So there's a lot more looking at how can you uh, take parts of your land and use it for um, 
diversification of wildlife, um, things like beetle banks, wild um, flower meadows, etc., etc. But a drive towards that allows the flexibility that we can bring into farming really sort of take advantage. And there are some farmers who are just completely open to this new change. And, and those farmers are, are going to be the, the, the most successful in, in, in the future. On, on the investor side, people are really excited about farming becoming digitised. Well, it's a most interesting example there. And you can find out more about Tom, Dick, Harry and Wilma online. Take a look at that. They're all very different at smallrobotcompany.com. Now, uh, Tim and Chris, let's return to what we were talking about slightly before, about how digital and tech can future-proof other sectors. And first of all, I suppose the most important thing, um, Chris, you first, is the supply chain, isn't it? We set out to be a disruptor uh, 30 years ago, um, and partly by creating uh, outsource facilities in an area that had traditionally been vertically integrated. Um, And so that's exactly where we fit into the supply chains. Um, And what we found more recently is that, um, I guess historically, we would deal with our direct customers, and uh, we were pretty much buried and, in many cases, invisible from the the end uh, customer, whether it's a handset manufacturer, um, automotive, uh, or whichever, um, where now we're finding that a lot of the OEMs are taking much more uh, control, if you like, of what goes on in their products, and so they're taking much more interest in the whole supply chain, and so working much more closely. So collaboration is, is, is actually a very key part of, of how our sector certainly grows, and will grow in the future. Um, and, and I guess one of the fears of some of the uncertainties that, that are there right now is whether these collaborations in certain areas can be uh, at risk. Having said that, they can also be opportunities. For example, um, in our industry, which is truly global, um, the uh, import tariffs on on China between the US and China uh, is becoming a major issue. Um, And actually, China is looking at how it can become less reliant on the US. Now, that could be a a real opportunity for non-US-based or headquartered companies. Actually, what most of the clients I've worked with over the last couple of years in planning for Brexit or planning for US-China trade war, for example, have have discovered is their own supply chains. It's amazing how much the supply chain, the physical movement of goods from one place to another, which is as critical, if not more critical in today's economy as it was 100, 200 years ago, has been outsourced, has been someone else's problem. Um, And everyone has focused on what happens above market, what happens at headquarters and those sorts of commercial decisions or operational decisions outside the supply chain. Um, For the first time, you've got uh, multinationals rediscovering where their stuff is moving um, and also who's moving it for them because they're subcontracting to companies that are subcontracting and subcontracting uh, again. Um, Understanding the geographical flow of goods is absolutely critical because we don't have, we can't rely on the same sorts of uh, political assumptions that we had before this isn't just a brexit or a a european issue this is this is worldwide this is the western world that hasn't really had this issue in the past do you find jim that amongst your clients and the people that you talk to that this whole idea of what it was once called just in time has had to be totally readapted for this sort of age and you're also looking at things like the transfer of data now aren't you and analytics yeah. is, is is that part of the supply chain thing too you've mentioned earlier didn't you you've got to work with regulators you can't just willy-nilly go steaming across continents anymore doing what you want the the, st- the willy-nilly steaming across continents well certainly the steaming across continents is happening more and more so if we take the last couple of years in the uk out of the picture 
just in time, which has only ever been a portion of um, manufacturing industry, and it's been very much a manufacturing industry thing, um, has been increasing because the pressure for, for companies has been a permanent and ongoing reduction in their working capital, essentially the amount of cash that is locked up in, in their supply chain. So that's continuing. Um, but there have been some countervailing forces, and I think we're going to see these increasingly. So, OK, there's geopolitics, there's, there's tariffs, there are things like Brexit going on. But as well, there is a, a real concern around uh, carbon emissions and, and environmental sustainability, which means that simply making one component in one part of the world, shipping it to the other side of the world and then back again, doesn't necessarily stack up. Um, there is the security, and particularly the data security side of things, which I suspect is probably one of the reasons why you're you're seeing more vertical um, cross uh, or sharing of knowledge about uh, what's going on in the supply chain. And there's the ethical dimension too. So, so there are currents pushing in the other direction. But just in time is, is absolutely the only way that some of these very, particularly the very uh, narrow margin businesses, can actually survive. Um, what we've found within our industry sector is is a tendency to cluster. Um, and we certainly saw that with Silicon Valley being the first cluster. A lot of that migrated to Taiwan. And now we, we believe in the UK. We've actually got a good opportunity to, to cluster a number of companies within the supply chain, which means you're less dependent on uh, shipping stuff around the world, um, which has uh, obviously a, an advantage from an environmental impact. Um, so, so distance becomes, certainly for an immediate supply chain, less of an issue. But um, clearly, because it's a global industry, there is still the need to transfer data. And the risks there are the regulatory frameworks. Uh, certainly in our uh, industry, in, in tech, um, there are a lot of export controls on what data you can and cannot um, transfer from uh, one continent to another, for example. Well, it brings me on to something you raised earlier, wasn't it? Regulation is there for all of us. I mean, is there anything new that is affecting businesses now? Yeah, I think regulation is, is more end-to-end. -end. If I look at some of the sectors that I work in, pharmaceuticals and medical devices, for example, being being one, the, the sophistication of regulation and and the, the need it places on uh, companies to understand their processes end-to-end. -end. So we take GDPR, the data privacy, uh, recent data privacy uh, rules across Europe, um, but also advances in... Um, single market regulation of, of, of goods as well uh, is back to this you can't outsource um, control over the supply chain as much as you used to you need to understand what's happening all the way from uh, not quite the, the the mine to the to the shop shelf but but not far off um, and that's going to continue uh, regardless of what happens politically um, there isn't going to be major deregulation in in for example product quality is not going to happen no, I mean, it's interesting you say that. I mean, you say sometimes it is back to the source. I would have thought particularly in health and, and forestry, yeah. for example, you can buy goods and things that are certificated all the way through the supply chain. Now, does regulation at the end, people, I always hear from companies that we interview, it's an extra cost, it's an extra burden. Is that true? Or is it a bit like having a good stamp, like, you know, these are free-range eggs? I mean, is it certain kudos to it, isn't there? Well, regulation does create competitive walls uh, as well. Uh, if you're in a highly regulated sector and you're one of only a few companies that has the, the scale to be able to, uh, to to cope with that regulation, that's potentially a competitive advantage. But also, regulation is um, it, it's absolutely critical for companies to help companies understand what they do and to be able to articulate that and if it if there weren't regulation then the consumer wouldn't know what they were getting and companies wouldn't be quite so well equipped to deal with things when they went wrong
I suppose the other barrier that people might, is something that we all face, isn't it, one way or another, Tim, is uh, taxation. This is my day job. So when I'm not advising on, on Brexit, I'm, I'm advising on, on tax and corporate tax in, in particular. Companies spend and governments spend disproportionate amounts of time focusing on corporate income tax because that's the poster child. That's the one that gets in, in the news. The vast majority of tax that's collected is increasingly done so increasingly automatically through VAT, other consumption taxes and, and payroll taxes. And that's really where the major tax take from, from industry comes. Um, but corporate tax is an important um, guiding factor for, for companies when they're thinking about where to locate. It's very rarely the only um, decision point. Um, again, we, we were talking earlier about uh, why IQE ended up in, in, in Wales, and clearly it wasn't the corporate tax rate that uh, led it to, to, to Wales, but it is one of the things that has to be in the mix. Um, I think one of the things in terms of incentives that is quite important is is to to, to make sure that the, the tax systems do encourage um, uh, entrepreneurship, for example, through um, perhaps uh, how share ownership is dealt with, and uh, to, to make sure that there are regimes in place that, that encourage uh, this sort of innovation and entrepreneurship. We've already seen uh, examples over the last few decades. Um, it's the information age. So to be able to have um, information that years ago you'd have had to um, work really hard just to dig out, um, then it's now at your fingertips. So it means that we can operate globally in a, in a way that we couldn't 10, 20 years ago. And I think that uh, with future technologies and other disruptive technologies that are coming along, um, we, we will embrace them and, and automatically adapt um, to, to be able to use them. Well, one of those ways, surely, of, of encouraging entrepreneurship is, is, is the tricky problem of um, the digital workforce and how much of it we do have to sometimes bring in. I mean, looking at people who come in from, from the EU and, and indeed from beyond that, is it more or less difficult nowadays for the tech industry and the industries you deal with to actually bring in the talent they need? If they can't get it, they can go out and buy it. It depends on where they're, they're based. It's interesting looking at the UK market that if you're in central London, you don't have to go and get people from overseas generally because there is an international workforce in London already. So when companies based in London are hiring EU nationals, they're not bringing them across from EU countries. They're, they're there already. Um, if, on the other hand, you're someone, and, and I, I work with a number of companies based uh, in the north or, or in more rural areas who are having to hire specific skills um, from overseas directly, um, then it, it's become quite difficult. And, and part of that is driven by politics, but a lot of that has simply been driven by um, squeezes on the workforce generally and also the, the the growing economies and some of the source markets. Chris, what's your take on that? Uh, we, we've noticed this. I mean, uh, we, we have a number of um, employees who are European nationals uh, and those that have been with us uh, for a longer time seem to be more confident. Um, but we've certainly noticed a decline in the number of applicants and being able to get um, uh, and encourage people in from Europe. Um, and having said that, we, we actually recruit globally. We, we have a number of people from Asia from um, North America and so on. Um, but but uh, certainly over the last, I'd say last year or so, we've seen a, a quite a sharp decline in interest uh, from European nationals wanting to, to come to either the UK or Wales. Perhaps it's not so much of an issue to London, but um, it, it's something that we have noticed firsthand. Now, to the future, as a, as a final thought from you both, we've always had this productivity problem in Britain that we talk about. The Bank of England gets involved and why do we spend perhaps more time at work and produce less? I mean, 
how can let's say you first that how can productivity and and digital if you like work together and i'm talking here whether it's software harbor whatever it is how can we improve productivity through the subject we've been talking about today i think it's a lot harder for the uk structurally than it is for most other european uh, or certainly northern european countries to do so and the reason for that is that we are very service sector dominated and a lot of our service sector is human personal services it's a lot harder to automate and therefore increase productivity in, in service industry than it is in manufacturing. And so the, the huge productivity gains that, that we've seen across the world and, and in the West over recent decades have largely been in manufacturing. So for digital and robotics to to really help us out here, we need to talk about automating uh, roles like, like mine, uh, like, like yours, um, the service sector that we're so good at needs to be automated. Otherwise, we end up with, with the same productivity problems. Do you see that from, from, from your perspective at IQE? From a manufacturing point of view, one of the issues that uh, the UK has had over the last few decades um, has been uh, a lack of investment in the um, research and development through to prototyping, through to manufacturing. Um, and so we've relied very heavily on inward investment at the manufacturing stage, um, but it's not supported by the infrastructure to develop new products and innovate behind that. Um, that's done elsewhere. Um, and that, that's where I think we have a, a real advantage where we can uh, do that and, and uh, our sector in semiconductors is, is one of those areas where, where we're trying to evolve that but we need to see a lot more traction in making sure that we have everything in place from as I say the research and development all the way through to production capabilities um, if we rely just on um, low value manufacturing um, then you, you get into the landscape of um, uh, cheap labour effectively and that's not something that either we want to compete in or, or should be competing in definitely not no and um Tim, how do you think technology is is going to if you like drive future progress i think it'll be in exactly the same way as all technological uh, breakthroughs and, and changes of, of help drive economic growth which is by making things that are currently time consuming and difficult really easy and automatic meaning that we can focus on the new time consuming and, and difficult things and, and take ourselves up the uh, the value chain and that's going to be the case i think across all sectors is that the approach you find, Chris, or is it are you coming at it from a different way? I, I think it'll be through uh, a combination of disruptive technologies um, that we perhaps don't recognise until we look back on them with hindsight that they have really changed how we do things. Um, and and I think we need to embrace uh, a lot of these new technologies as they come along. Um, at the moment, I think there's a, a sense of head in the sand about things like automation that will happen in, in manufacturing and so on. Um, and we're still training for and uh, preparing for today's world, which is not going to look like the future world. I think, and I'll be interested to see what, what you have to, to say as well, that um, we need to, we simply need to spend more money in a more professional, long-term way. As industry overall and with government support, we need long-term and uh, expensive investment in technology and in, in development, uh, because that's the only way. You create your own luck then. Yes. I, I, I agree. I, I think it's um, I think it's targeted investment that we need. Um, you, you, you see some countries, and Singapore is often quoted as a great example, where they focus on technology and finance or fintech, um, and they throw everything at uh, making sure they are uh, the world leader in that. 
whereas we don't really have a focus we can be uh, home for everything from call centers to high volume manufacturing um, we, we don't really have a targeted yeah, uh, like investment strategy yeah, yeah. All right. Well, thank you both very much indeed, Tim Sarsen and Chris Meadows, uh, both for joining me today. And uh, that's about all we have time for, I'm afraid. Thank you also to the small robot company and Waitrose for inviting us along to a glimpse of the future. Well, actually, it's almost the here and now. That's the last episode of Digital Masters from The Times in association with KPMG. I hope you found it as fascinating as I have to explore some of the really big ideas and looking to the future. You can keep up to date with all the latest news as well as views, comment, analysis and insight with the Times subscription. You can find out more at thetimes.co.uk. I'm Robert Miller. On behalf of the Times and KPMG, thanks for listening. <laughs>